0: Good morning, Ephesians chapter one, verses three through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory.
1: Well, Thank you, Ben, for sharing your giftedness with us. That's always an encouragement. And I hope you take time to thank Jason and the band. That's a lot of work that goes into leading us in worship. Well, as we begin this morning, uh, let us pray, and then we'll look at Ephesians chapter one. Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for this chance to gather. God, I thank you that you've given us your word. Lord, that we can know the mind of God. We are not left guessing at who you are or, or what you expect or what you've done. Lord, you've laid it out for us. You've made it available. And Lord, I pray now as we look at the riches of the gospel, that it would impact our lives. Lord, as we look at the sovereignty of, of you Lord, uh, your ability to not only make the plan, but to keep the plan, I pray that it would encourage us through, through the trials of this life, Lord, through the difficulties, Lord, that we would rest in you and you alone. God, I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we get into the book of Ephesians and finish up our two-part series on Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14, I have just a, a brief story that I think pretty well encapsulates the main point I want to make today. This story played out 102 years ago today, which is kind of cool, I didn't realize that until I started to dive in. But July 1st, 1916, the British mounted their first major offensive against the Germans in World War I. It's known in history as the Battle of the Somme or the Somme Offensive. It was designed by English General Haig not just to take land back. No, he wanted to crush the spirits of the Germans. The war was two years in, and he wanted to hit them so hard that they might just give up and go home. Well, the planning that went into this offensive was pretty amazing. They laid over 7,000 miles of telephone wire. 120 miles of water pipes were buried just to make sure they had all the supplies for the guys. 1,500 pieces of artillery were brought in to fortify the British lines. That was one for every 17 yards of the battle line. Over the three days of bombardment that led up to the, the charging of the trenches, 1.5 million shells fell on the German lines. Over one ton of munitions fell on every square yard of the German lines, just to give you an idea how thorough and how well-planned this was. Well, when it finally came tar- char- or time to charge, the British soldiers, they came up from the trenches, and just according to plan, they went marching towards the Germans, I'm sure, praying that there was no Germans left to be marching towards Well, much to their surprise, the Germans were there. The shells that had actually very little effect. There had been this masterful plan, but when it came time to advance, not even the barbed wire that was supposed to slow the the British down, not even that had been cut by the the shells that had fallen. The British were funneled into these little, basically like cattle chutes. They marched at the Germans who were up on the, the bunkers with their machine guns and their artillery. And this masterfully planned offensive turned into the most costly day of battle in the history of the British Army. Well, we're in today the second part of a two-part series in the book of Ephesians that I've titled The Riches of the Gospel. Last week, we looked at the first part of this amazingly long run-on Greek sentence, and we looked at four of the seven riches that Paul builds this whole case around, this whole sentence around. If you remember from last week, if you are in Christ... You are chosen before the foundation of the world. You are purposed. God has given us a purpose, and that is to live a life of holiness and purity motivated by love. You are adopted. You are sons of the King, and we have been redeemed, purchased from sin by the blood of Christ. Well, today we will look at the final three riches in this long sentence, and I'll give them to you now. We'll walk through them here in a few minutes. But first we will look at the reality that in Christ we have been informed. We have information that the Old Testament saints longed to have. We have been allotted. We have been given an eternal inheritance. And finally, we have been sealed, marked forever as belonging to God. Well, as we look at these three, informed, allotted, and sealed, it occurred to me as I studied, all of these things have one thing in common. They're all talking about the future. They're all talking about something that is yet to come. And so, by default, they must also be talking about the sovereignty of God. You see, as believers, we are called to live lives of faith. Lives not focused on this world. No, we are to be focused on the world to come. We are focused on the promises that God has made. Many of those we have not fully obtained yet. We as humans, we are not sovereign. We can make the best plans. It doesn't matter if we're a World War I general or just trying to live our own little lives here in Laramie. We can make the best plans. But when it comes to actually making sure that things go according to our plans We fall far short. We see this every day. Every day we are met by sickness and accidents we never would have anticipated. You may stockpile wealth, but the market can crash. Your plans will be interrupted. Just this week, I was trying to study one day. I'd laid out two hours to study. And in the same day, my truck ran out of gas. And my little son, who is so consistent in napping, he decided it'd be a great day just to stay up the whole time. (laughs) Totally ruined my plans. Okay, I am not sovereign, but I have a God who is. A God who has made promises, and a God who can not only plan out the future, he can make sure that the future comes to pass. These things should be an encouragement to our souls. They should encourage our hearts through the times of troubles, through the ups and downs of this life. We have a sovereign God who sits on the throne. Let's look at the riches. The first of the riches today is found in verse 9-9. Verses 9 and 10 of Ephesians chapter 1. Here Paul writes, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things on heaven and things on earth. That is a complicated little section, but I think if you boiled it all down, this is what Paul is trying to say. We, this side of the cross, have information that should make a difference in our lives. He says he has made known to us the mystery. Well, this idea of the mystery is something that the Apostle Paul likes to refer to time and time again. In fact, 20 times in the New Testament, he talks about the mystery. Now, since I don't have all morning, we won't look at all 20 of these verses to tell you what exactly Paul meant by the mystery. But Peter did us a favor. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, he sums up basically all that Paul is talking about when he uses the phrase mystery. In 1 Peter 1, Peter writes this, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. What is the mystery that has been made known? Well, I think Peter captures it well here. The Old Testament saints, the Old Testament prophets, all those before Christ, they long to know how will this salvation ultimately be worked out. Yes, we have animal sacrifices, but how will the price of sin finally be paid? Not only that, Peter says they long to know how in the world is the Messiah going to come and suffer, but also reign. How can he come and die and yet come and sit on the throne? Those two things don't make sense. Well, what Paul is saying here is this side of the cross, we have insight here that the Old Testament saint longed to have. We know that the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, came down and died on the cross for his people. But he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, but he's coming back. He'll come back to judge and to rule and to reign on this earth. We have information. We have been informed. We don't know every detail by any stretch of the imagination but we have so much more. As Paul says here, the mystery has been made known. And where is this pointing? Well, in verse 10, Paul writes, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of time. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, depending on your translation, you may have a different word here at the beginning of verse 10. The NASB translates this administration. Yours may say something like a stewardship, a dispensation, a plan, The word itself refers to the way that God oversees his universe. How is God working in the world? How is he overseeing the universe? Right now, we are in the era of the church. Go back to the Old Testament. There was a different way that God worked. You had to go to the nation of Israel. If you wanted to meet with Yahweh, you had to travel halfway around the world, go to Jerusalem. That's where he was. You became a Jew to functionally worship Yahweh. Well, now he has done something different. And what Paul is saying here is God is ultimately heading somewhere with this. All of these things have been made known to us. We know what the future holds. We know that there is a time coming where, as it says in verse 10 here, all things will be summed up in Christ. Now, to sum something up here in the Greek, it's the idea of you're an accountant, and you have all the entries on the ledger, and you get to the end, and you hit the, the equal sign, and you add it all up. It could also be used of, like, a lawyer, He may give a great masterful opening argument. At the end, he's going to give you some sort of closing statement and in one sentence tell you, here's why I've been talking for all these minutes. This is the main point. We're going to sum it all up. Well, here Paul says there is a time coming where everything will be summed up in Christ. There is an era coming where everything, and he says everything in heaven and everything on earth. That is to say absolutely everything. Nothing held back. It will all be summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, how will this happen? We find out as we study the rest of Scripture, Jesus will one day physically come back. He's going to judge the wicked. He will bind and ultimately one day destroy Satan. The curses of the fall will be done away with, and one day, perfect eternity will begin. Paul is saying here then, we are no longer left wondering, what is God's goal in all of this? As we look at history we know what he is up to we ultimately know how it's all going to end with jesus sitting on the throne the curses undone and a perfect kingdom handed back to the father paul says we have been informed well not only do we rejoice here because we've been informed we rejoice because we if we are in christ we will be part of it look at the next treasure this is the sixth treasure overall the second one today It's found in verses 11 through 12, and I've titled this one Allotted. Paul writes, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. I want to spend just a few minutes on those first two little words. It's easy to read over them. In him. I mentioned this briefly last week, but 36 times in the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul uses that little phrase. He'll either say, in him, or in Christ. 36 times. There's only six chapters in the, ch- in the book of Ephesians. So that's an average of six times per chapter. Paul reminds us, somehow or another, that we are in Christ. We are in him. Well, think what he's saying here. He's just built a whole case that all things are one day going to be summed up in Jesus Christ. He is the one who will come and rule. He is the Redeemer. He is the King. And Paul can't get over this reality that if we have responded to the gospel, the good news that though we are sinners destined for hell, Jesus died on our behalf. If we have believed in that, if we have trusted that, we are in Jesus Christ. What an amazing reality that is. And not only are we just in Him and we don't know what that means, no, He tells us what this is going to bring about. He says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Now, the Greek word he uses here is actually a unique word. It's the only time it gets used in the New Testament. And it means to be appointed by lot. To be appointed by lot. So we think lots, we think rolling the dice, something like that. You're going to cast lots. Well, this is an Old Testament idea. In the Old Testament, if you had something you wanted to divide up, and you wanted to do it in a way that all parties involved could walk away saying... God was in control of that. God handed out the right portion to the right person. You would cast lots over it. You see this at times in the Old Testament when treasures of war were gathered. They would cast lots to decide who got to take what. On the Day of Atonement, as described in the book of Leviticus, they would bring in two animals. Two animals, the lots would be cast. One was going to die. The blood would be shed of one on behalf of the sins of the people. The other would be led out into the wilderness. Well, the final way this is used, and I think this is what the Apostle Paul has in mind when it came time for the sons of Israel to divide up the promised land, they had conquered it and they just had to figure out who gets what portion. They surveyed it out and they drew lots. And so, forever, through the Old Testament at least, all of the tribes could look back and they could say, This portion of land we have, this was allotted to us by the Lord. This is our inheritance from Him. It's his sovereign will, it is his divine purpose, he meant for us to have this. Well, the Apostle Paul here says, we have in Christ been allotted an inheritance. An inheritance that, as we read on through verses 11 and 12, this is not based on something whimsical. This is not God just going with the flow, responding to us and saying, well, I guess if he's going to do this, then I'll do this. No, 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 God has a plan, and he has a purpose, as you look through the rest of verse 11, you find two key words. It says, you have been predestined, and then it says just a little bit later, according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to be predestined and to have God working. Well, to be predestined here, it speaks to the plan. It speaks to God's divine plan. It's the same word that was used back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, if you remember from last week. There, Paul wrote that God predestined us to adoption. Well, here Paul says, God has also predestined you to an eternal inheritance. And not only has he made the masterful plan, he can work that plan out. You don't have to worry as we live this life of faith, can the God who made these promises, who calls me to obedience, can he actually deliver on his promises in the end? No, Paul reminds us, God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That word works there. In the Greek, it's energale, and I just give you that because I think you can figure out what it is in the English. It's our English word to energize. It literally means in the Greek to cause something to function, to cause it to be, to bring it upon, to bring it about. What Paul is saying here then is God not only, it's not just that he knows the plan, no, he made the plan, and he can cause it to come to pass. Now think of the scale of this. I can't, as I told you, organize one afternoon of my life to get two hours of study in with just a malfunctioning vehicle and my little son who doesn't want to take a nap. God right now is working with 7.4 billion people on this earth. Every one of them has a free will. He's working with a fallen world, a fallen enemy. Satan is opposed to him. And yet Paul can say, God is sovereign enough, he is in control enough that all of that stuff, all of the, the effects of the fall, he can still work it out to something good. And what's he trying to work it out to? Well, verse 12 is very important to catch. Look in verse 12, it says, "To the end, that we who are the first to hope in Christ will be to the praise of his glory." Now, when we think about our lives, at least when I think about my life, I usually operate like this life is about my comfort. It's about my glory, It's about my security. Here we get a really important principle that you have to catch today. This world and your life is ultimately about God's glory, not yours. Now, his glory is going to be for your best. His glory is going to be something that we will praise for all of eternity, and it is seen in our salvation. But this world is not about our glory. It's not about our comforts. In fact, God will oftentimes bring trials into our lives First of all, to bring us to the end of ourselves, to reach out to Him and say, Lord, you must save me because I can't save myself. And for those who are saved, God will bring trials to teach us to be more like Christ. He will bring us closer and closer to Him as we go through all these things. Well, God's glory is what's at stake here. God's glory is the end goal, that's where this is all heading. And God's glory is going to, I think this is what Paul is saying here, God's glory will be on display for all of eternity by looking at his grace and salvation to those who got saved. He has saved us. We are forever trophies of his grace. I think for all of eternity, we're going to walk around, I'm going to look at myself and look at all you guys and say, man, God is gracious. We do not deserve this. Well, that's the whole point here. God has saved us, he has gifted us, and he has guaranteed us an inheritance that will never go away. What an amazing God we have. Well, not only have we been informed and allotted, verse 13 and 14 say, we have been sealed. Look at verse 13 and 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. I think what the Apostle Paul is addressing here in verses 13 and 14 is not, is this Jews or Gentiles? He's going to get to that later. I think what he's asking here, and the question that those in Ephesus might have, is, okay, Paul, it's great for you to say that all these riches are available. And it makes sense if they are given to someone like Paul. What a guy that is, a guy he laid his whole life down. He is an apostle of the Lord. It makes sense if he and his companions have received all these treasures. Me? There's no way God would do something like that for me. No, I think what Paul is emphasizing here, he says all of you, it doesn't matter who you are, if you are in Christ, and he tells us what it means to be in Christ, he says there right at the beginning of 13, he says if you have heard the message of truth, if you have heard the gospel, and you have believed it, if that applies to you, you are sealed. Now, to be sealed in this world, in, in, in Paul's world, it meant to be marked. It meant to be marked with a unique stamp. It was used on a, as a, a wax seal on important documents. So it was kind of like your signature. Put the wax and then put the signet ring in it. Everyone knows this is authorized, this is from who it claims to be from. It was also used as you were branding cattle or other things that belonged to you. You would put your seal on them. This is mine. This belongs to me. Well, what Paul is saying here is if you are saved and you have the Holy Spirit, God has sealed you. You can be sure that you have an eternal inheritance because he has marked you. You belong to him. What an amazing truth. But he doesn't stop there. Look in verse 14. He says the Holy Spirit is not only the seal, the Holy Spirit is the pledge, the pledge of the inheritance. Now, pledge here could be translated as down payment. It's the first installment. You go to buy a house, they usually want you to put some skin in the game. You're going to put something down to know that you're going to pay the full amount at some point. Well, in the same way the Holy Spirit has been given, we have the first installment. Now, the rest of the verse goes on to say we haven't fully received all of our redemption yet, but we can be confident that we will one day because we have been sealed and we have been pledged. The Holy Spirit is that function in our lives. Well, what do we do with all this? We've looked at these realities, these three truths from today. What do we take away from this? I think we have to, first of all, rest in the fact that God has a perfect plan. God has a perfect plan even when we don't understand it. If he calls us to obedience, if he calls us to a life of faith, we can trust in him because he doesn't just know the plan, he is in control of the plan. He knows where it's all headed, he knows how it's going to work out. You know, I told you that the Battle of the Somme was the most costly day of, the British, uh, in, uh, of British history. I didn't tell you the statistics, though, that they're pretty eye-popping. In one day, 102 years ago, the British lost 50, 57,470 men to casualties. Almost 20,000 of those were dead. And, to make it even worse, at least in my mind, the general who planned the whole thing and who sent all those men forward into the machine gun fire, he remained one of the chief generals of the British for the next two years, until the end of the war. Now, I can't imagine being one of the soldiers under him. Next time he told me, charge and go for the bunker, and I promise you, there's no one out there. He went as far as to tell the guys, don't even bother bringing your rifles, just bring your walking stick. We'll take the Germans that easily. Now, they brought their rifles. (laughs) They didn't quite take it that serious. But what kind of confidence would you have following someone like that? That is not our God. We have been given information. We've been, given infor- we've been informed. We've been allotted in eternal inheritance. We've been sealed as, marking, as belonging to him forever. So we can rest in him. I, I don't know what trials you're facing today, but whatever it is, you have a sovereign God who is ultimately after his glory and your good, and you can rest in that. The final idea or the final thought I want to leave us with is that as we've looked at these riches over the last two weeks, we must remember there was an incredible price paid to give us these riches. You were not redeemed with silver or gold or any, price, any costly stone like that. No, it was the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, died on your behalf. And so as we celebrate communion and as we take time to remember Christ, I'd encourage you, remember his work and remember the riches that he has made available. In Christ, you are chosen. You are purposed. You are adopted. You are redeemed. You are informed. You are allotted. And you are sealed. But we must never remember the only reason we have this, the only reason this is available is because of what we remember as we take communion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Let's pray. God, I thank you for this text. Lord, I thank you for your sovereignty. God, that's a word that we throw around a lot, but we don't often take time to think about what it actually means that you are sovereign. But Lord, you are in control. Lord, you are the one who has taken this mess that we have made. Lord, the fallenness of sin. And Lord, you have a plan for it all. It is a plan that makes you glorious. Lord, it puts Jesus Christ on display as the summation of all things. And Lord, I pray we would rest And that when our hearts are tempted to fret, our hearts are tempted to try to control this world, Lord, we can give up uh, controlling our, our own destiny and trust that you're in control, Lord. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.